Morning. Guys, good to see you here today. I want to do a quick shout out before we jump into uh, to life here today, but I want to shout out a big happy birthday to Bill. Bill turned 93 two days ago. Let's give it up for Bill. Happy birthday, Bill. Brothers walking in by his own strength. Every week we see him here, I swear. It's amazing. And we love you, brother. Thank you and happy birthday to you. And uh, we are not going to wish you 93 more, but uh, we wish you blessing every day that God grants you. And uh, thanks for being a pioneer and a model in the faith. One more time for Bill. So I wouldn't to invite you to take a Bible with me, whether you're going to do it with a hard copy, if you brought one or something you find under a seat or on your phone, doesn't matter, but would you turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to peg in at verse 11. Let me give you to that again. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. This is not John chapter 3. This is 1 John chapter 3. You're going to find it near the back of your Bible. I want you to follow along with me as I read this, but I want you to do one better. I actually want you to mark or highlight a couple of passages with me. And you might be here right now going, well, I don't know how to do that on my phone. Well, just click the verse and you will see a scroll pop at the bottom and just click highlight and it'll give you like 25 colors to choose from or something like that. Good way to explore it and figure it out. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're going, but this is a church Bible. Can I write in it? The answer is yes, absolutely. Give a roadmap to the next person who might open it and uh, yeah, use it as a tool. Because that's what this is. It's a tool that God gives us to understand him better and ourselves better. So 1 John chapter 3, starting at verse 11, I'm going to invite you to follow along with me. Here's what John says. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Go ahead and underline or highlight. We should love one another. John says this is not a new message. It's the message we've heard from the beginning that Jesus spoke to his disciples well before John wrote this letter that permeates through the Old Testament all the way back to Adam and Eve. Go ahead and make sure to mark that today. Then he says in verse 12, do not be like Cain. That's really good advice. (laughs) Go ahead and highlight that or underline that phrase with me. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Do you see that phrase? Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Do you see that phrase? Go ahead and highlight that phrase. That's a good phrase, isn't it? No, you don't like that phrase? Highlight it anyway. He goes on, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives 
for our brothers and sisters. And you know what? Heck, go ahead and underline that one too. I know at this point you're going, I'm underlining a lot, to which I go, yes. All right? So highlight that one too. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows anything. Now, if you can, and it's the last one I'm going to have you do today, highlight into that phrase, this is how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. God is greater than our hearts. Key in that, mark that, remember that. Don't let that get lost in the trail. He rounds it out simply by saying, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Or are, you, are you all properly good and marked up today? Fantastic. So go back with me. It is July 28th, 1996. Tina and I had been married for exactly 16 hours, and both of us were absolutely miserable. <laughs> and lay out the story for you here. Tina and I met our freshman year of high school. I am told that she noticed me before I noticed her because, like, ladies, can you, can you blame her, right? But anyway, I was dating a girl on Tina's floor. And any of you who are going off to college, you are going to learn this very soon. Freshman girls travel in packs. So when you date someone who is a freshman girl, you, in essence, sort of date the whole floor by extension, where you go, they go. Where you will be, they will be. Your God will be their God and every other kind of Ruth aphorism you want to flow out. And so I got to meet Tina a little bit later in life. Now, I got mercilessly dumped, all right? I know, it's unbelievable that that could ever happen. But mercilessly dumped, and then second semester, Tina and I were in the same class. We were actually in jazz band together. And because we knew each other, we would walk home together, we'd walk back to our dorms together, we would start chatting together, we would start shooting the bull together, and there comes a point in every relationship when all of your friends around you realize something needs to happen here because you guys are asleep at the wheel. And so on March 20th of 1993, the date is disputed, but I am right, <laughs> Tina and I started dating. We dated all through undergrad. And it was in the summer before my senior year that we came to that moment where I decided to get down on one knee and her answer, I kid you not, was this. Are you serious? <laughs> Tina's not here today, so I can tell you all the good stories that... <laughs> and through the rest of our senior year, we planned our wedding. 
Our senior year was this year of engagement, looking for the venue, looking for the hall, getting the caterer, getting the band, doing the DJ kind of thing, getting the invitation strut, making the guest list. You guys have been in the trenches in this, at least some of you. You know what I'm talking about in this. And of course, most importantly, planning the honeymoon. Because the party is for your parents. But the honeymoon, that's something different. Would you agree? By the way, just some good advice. Don't bring your parents along on your honeymoon. It never goes well in the end. And Tina and I were blessed and in a position where we could do it big and we decided to go to Hawaii. Anyone ever do Hawaii here? We did Hawaii. We went to the island of Maui. We stayed there for eight days. It was glorious and wonderful, but we were not there yet. Because here we were, 16 hours after, standing before an altar because it was a traditional church, exchanging the I do's, absolutely miserable, sitting on an airplane, waiting for it to take off. Because here was the fatal flaw in our plan. The way that things were playing out with our wedding was that she was living at home, I was living at home, and we were going to get married on July 27th. We would then have a honeymoon with a very short period of time afterwards by which we would move to St. Louis, I would start seminary, and we would start school together. Now, we wanted to maximize the time on our honeymoon. And we saw that the only flight that was leaving for O'Hare, that from O'Hare to Maui, that did not require like 18 layovers along the way, was leaving at 8 a.m. Now, you got to know something about Tina and I. It is physically impossible for us to not be the last people to leave an event. We just don't know how to do it. We cannot not close a place down, all right? We were at a concert a few months ago, and I kid you not, we were still there talking with some friends. The lights were on, they were sweeping the things, and even the security staff had left. This is just how we kind of live. And so there was no prayer that we were going to leave our wedding reception early. We scheduled it to midnight, because Tina and I are nocturnal, and we don't do the morning well. So we were there till midnight, and then we were talking there with friends until 1 a.m. The original plan was that we were just going to sleep at my mom's house for like three hours. And my best man looked at me and said, you were not staying at your mom's house on your wedding night. <laughs> Got us a hotel. We pulled in at 2 a.m. I will not now describe to you the rest of the events that unfolded <laughs> from 2 a.m., but fast forward with me to 5 a.m. when that alarm starts going, here we are. We are exhausted. And not just from, and not from that, all right? We are exhausted from the wedding reception going late. But as you well know, all the buildup that goes with it, exhausted from a year of planning, exhausted from all of it, now functioning on three hours of sleep, and we thought this was a good idea because we got to get to Maui ASAP. Wait another day, maybe? And may I give some more pre-marriage advice this morning? 
If you are here today planning to get married, either in the near future or sometime in your future, and you get this deluded idea, which is from Satan himself, that says we should leave as soon as possible the day after our wedding to get to our honeymoon, renounce that in the name of the Lord, all right? Because it is pure evil idiocy. We are there bleary-eyed, stumbling, We're not drinkers. There was no hangover kind of thing. But just beat physically to the core. Tina, in fact, was so tired that as we dragged ourselves out of the hotel room, threw on a pair of old, dirty clothes, no one got up to take a shower, bleary-eyed getting driven to the airport, she actually gets to the airport and throws up in a garbage can in the middle of O'Hare from all of the adrenaline come down and everything else, and it's like, here's my bride, right? (laughs) And then we walk on the plane for what is going to be a combined total of nine hours of flying, not counting the layover in L.A. And because we're cheap, we got seats in the back. And as we're walking down this aisle, there's another young couple sitting there near first class. They are laughing They are having a champagne toast. They are wearing these tacky silk hats that say bride and groom. All right? People are congratulating them. Stewardesses, that's not proper terminology anymore. Is it flight attendants? I think we call them today. You know what I mean. No offense, stewardesses. All right? Flight attendants are waiting on them hand in foot. It looked like they slept for the last 17 days. All right? On some, I mean... They were having the time of their life. And here Tina and I come rolling in, wearing yesterday's socks and underwear, bleary-eyed and tired, cramming into these little seats. And those of you who are six foot three, you know you don't cram into those seats too well. And I will tell you this. I saw that couple, and I hated them. (laughs) Oh, I hated them. I didn't dislike them. I hated them. And I have thought a lot about that since. Why did I hate them so bad? Why do I hate them so bad? They didn't do anything to hurt me. They didn't do anything wrong. They were simply enjoying each other And the moment that they had, not causing any issue for anyone around, and in fact doing the opposite, bringing joy to the plane. But I hated them in the core of my being. Have you ever been there? Have you ever hated people like that? And step back, asking yourself, why do I hate them so Bad. Now, growing up, I was never allowed to use the word hate. There was a number of words we weren't allowed to use in our house, like sock and fart and crap, which is why I share them freely with you today. (laughs) But hate also made the list. 
we had to say words like this. I don't like it. You couldn't say I hate spinach. I don't like spinach. You couldn't say I hate school. I don't like school. You certainly couldn't say I hate that person or I hate you. No, the strongest you could get with an earshot of mom is I don't like that person or maybe I don't like you. But you know what I've come to realize? The Bible is far less interested with nuancing its language. We like to nuance our language because I think it soft pedals it for us. It kind of, it removes the teeth of an emotion we feel and I think maybe lets us feel a little bit more justified about feeling it. No, the Bible has no problem just using words like love and hate, friend and enemy. Let me give you an example. Look at how the Bible uses the word neighbor. If I was to ask you, who is your neighbor, and I was not sitting here in a conditioned church setting where you are already preconditioned to give me the right answer, what would you say? Probably the guy that lives next door. Maybe that weird dude that lives across the street. But fundamentally, you would be talking about people who physically lived in close proximity to where you live. Maybe it's two houses down, maybe it's a block. Shoot, maybe you would go the whole neighborhood. I don't know. But fundamentally, I bet you and most people would restrict the word neighbor into that box and into that way. And so when you see something like love your neighbor as yourself, you go, okay, well, I got 18 people I got to worry about. You notice how Jesus doesn't operate that way? In fact, Jesus is actually approached, asked, who is my neighbor? Because they were looking to kind of soft pedal the commands of God and get around the blatant truth that they didn't want to face. And Jesus goes into this amazing parable about strange people from faraway places who aren't like, and go, you know what? Those are your neighbors. Conclusion? Everyone is my neighbor in Jesus' dictionary. The same is true with hate. I bet if I was to ask you today, how many people do you hate? Some of you could come up with one, maybe two, maybe next spouse. Maybe someone who abused you or a child. Maybe a boss who was unethical or cruel and made or is making life miserable for you. Maybe you have a small handful of people, but the Bible is far less interested in nuancing the word hate. Let me share with you something Jesus has to say. This is from Matthew chapter 5. Look at what he says. You have heard it said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. He goes on, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, basically like a curse word in Aramaic, it's always good to know how to swear in other languages. Would you agree? (laughs) 
add this one to your list. Anyone who says that to a brother or sister back in Jesus' day was answerable to the Sanhedrin, to the court. But Jesus says, anyone who says you fool will be in the danger of the fires of hell? Oh, man. I bet if I was to ask you today, is there anyone that you hate? And if we felt comfortable in each other's company and honest, we would see a few hands. But if I was to ask you the question, are you angry with someone? Or have you been angry with someone? Are you with me that you would suspect that probably every single hand in the room would go up? I think of this biblical word, enemy. My bet is if I was to ask you, do you have an enemy? A few of you would be able to answer. But then I think of how the word enemy is, is, is kind of used to capture ideas that we nuance in our language today. Do you have an adversary? A competitor? Is there anyone in your life that maybe you aren't reconciled with? That you're on the outs with? Or to use my mom's language, that you just don't like. Can I give a biblical word to you to describe those thoughts and feelings? Hate. Hate. And 1 John opens by saying this. This is the message we have heard from the very beginning. We should love one another. And then immediately, love is contrasted with an example of hate. Did you see what you underlined? Do not be like Cain. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about Cain. Because by understanding Cain, I believe we can better understand what it means to love and not to hate. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the story, let me summarize it for you. You're going all the way back to the beginning. We are talking Genesis 4 country here, four chapters into the Bible. And what we see in these opening chapters of the Bible is that we have the first human beings made, a dude named Adam and a chick named Eve. All right? Now, Adam and Eve are called to be imagers of God, to take on God's job description and to do the work of God by ruling over this creation he has made, governing it as God would govern it. Creating and developing it as God would create and develop it. And as the story goes, they are deceived and everything goes off the rails and starts to unhinge, all right? They fall into what's called sin, a state of Rebellion against God, choosing their way over against God's way, their will over against God's will, their dreams against God's dreams, their future against God's future, their wishes against God's wishes. You get the idea, don't you? And God, because he is just, lays down consequences. We see things that Adam will need to work the ground now by the sweat of his brow, because creation itself is broken now. It's under some kind of curse and isn't going to function the way that God had intended. We see that Eve is going to 
undergo great pain and childbearing. That the times of greatest joy in her life are now going to be laced. And it's a comment, I think, that goes well beyond just giving birth. And we see more significantly that the serpent who deceived them is laid under a curse as well. And he who was once mighty and exalted is now brought down low to slither on the ground and eat the dust. And we see God set something up in inception form right in the beginning where there's going to be an ongoing hostility, a conflict between the serpent and his offspring and Eve's offspring as well. Constantly seeking to undo each other, to attack each other, to, to tear each other down. And in proverbial prophetic words, saying, he will strike your head, and to the serpent you will strike his heel. And shortly thereafter, Adam and Eve have a baby. It may be their first, it may not be, but it's the first named after the fall. And his name is Cain. And on giving birth to Cain, Eve goes, I have produced a man. I don't really know what that means, but it just kind of sounded fun to say. Um, but I think there's something significant in it. Because in all these promises of evil being brought down by Eve's offspring, here is the offspring. Is this the one, Cain, to set the matter straight? Almost as an aside, it then mentions that they have another child, another boy, and they name him Abel. Or if I was to say it in Hebrew, Hevel which is the exact same word that Ecclesiastes uses that gets translated meaningless. How about that for being born under a bad sign? And as Genesis 4 unfolds, we see that the two boys grow. One becomes a farmer, the other becomes a shepherd. And somewhere along the way, they both decide to bring offering to God. Abel chooses to bring the first portions, the fat portions, as it's called, the choice portions, you know, the best of the flock, and present them to God. While Cain finds some produce in a basket. And it says that God looks with favor, that God looked with favor upon Abel's offering but not Cain's. Now hear me in this. Nowhere does it say that Cain was punished. Nowhere does it say that Cain got scolded. Nowhere does it say that God came and gave the smack down on Cain. All it says is that God was delighted in what Abel did and not in what Cain did. And what do you think Cain felt about that? Hate. Hatred like two silk hat wearing people on a plane. <laughs> because fundamentally, isn't that what it's birthed from? 
Oh, don't hear me wrong. Sometimes we hate because of some kind of direct attack, direct assault on us. But how often do we hate simply because we see what someone else has or what someone else is enjoying that we are not? You might soft-pedal the term and call it resentment. You might call it envy. You might call it jealousy or selfishness. You may even go so far as to try to cloak it all in justice and say it would be just if what they had, I had too. The Bible's got one word for it. It's hate. Hate springs from this well so often does it not of seeing someone else be blessed or enjoy some kind of favor or partaking of some kind of privilege that we are not. And you know what hate does? Left unchecked, it causes you to pick up a rock and bash your brother in the head. And you can read in Genesis 4 how Cain killed Abel out of this place of hate. And John writes, you have heard this message from the beginning, love one another, do not be like Cain. Now if I was to take a poll here today and ask you, who here has ever murdered anyone? Well, first it would be really interesting to see who you're sitting next to, wouldn't it? But I think you would agree with me that we would see very, very, very few, if any, hands go up, right? There may be one or two. And if you're here today and you have murdered someone, we are so glad that you're here. We really are. All joking aside, because there is no past or sin that is outside the grace of God. Would you agree? And God has healing and forgiveness for you too. Welcome to God's family. But when you start to think about murder and hate and anger on Jesus' terms, a whole lot more hands would need to go up, wouldn't they? If I was to ask the same poll again, how many of you are murderers? Well, maybe you never pulled a trigger, stabbed a blade, wielded a club, threw a fist, or slipped the poison. But how many of you are guilty of the exact same disposition? emotion, and attitude towards another human being God loves in your heart. How many more hands would go up? But John writes, don't be like that. Don't be like Cain. How does he go on to say it? Don't be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Simply because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Something his brother was enjoying or experiencing and he did not turned him against him. 
Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. John likes the term world, and here's how John will often use it. Sometimes it can just refer to the entire cosmos, neutral, not good or evil as we know it, all of God's creation. But more oftenly, both in his gospel and especially in this letter, when John talks about the world, he is talking about those who stand in hostility towards God. In other words, the world, when used by John, is often a negative term. Not because creation is bad, do not hear me wrong used as a moniker for people who do not know God and therefore are disposed against him, hostile towards him. And John says, do not be surprised if the world hates you. But he says it right on the heels of talking about the murder of Cain. And I've been thinking about this and I've been reading about this and something kind of struck me through the wisdom of others as I've been marinating on it as well this week. That though we call ourselves Christians, the world is often right here in our midst. Too many Christians in too many churches bind to the delusion that Christians are in here and the world is out there. I don't see it that way. And I don't think that's the message John is writing because John is writing to fractured churches where are those within the churches who are going the way of darkness and death instead of the way of light and life. He's writing to Christians some who are the way of Cain. Cain was supposed to be the Messiah. Cain was religious. But Cain revealed himself of the evil evil one, a murderer, a murderer at heart. Let me tell you here today, Fellowship of Faith, if you are here today, you are sitting in a congregation of murderers. This church is filled with murderers. Our staff is filled with murderers. Your family is filled with murderers. As is your school, your place of work, your social circles, your community. And one of those murderers just might be you. Ask yourself, Who am I angry against? Who don't I like? Whose very appearance in presence just rubs me the wrong way? Oh, you've got that person in your life, right? And they may be sitting here right now. It's murder. In here, it's hate. And if you take Jesus' words seriously, if you dare to take Jesus' words seriously and not soft-pedal them and not rationalize them and try to find your own escape hatch out around them, it can so easily leave you to a place, lead you to a place going, that is me, oh my gosh, that is me. What does that mean for me? How can God love someone like me can lead you to a place of despair? How can God ever forgive someone like me? How can what I have done ever be atoned for? The damage is there. The outcropping of your anger, your dislike, right? 
your hate? No, maybe the person is still alive, but I promise you the damage is there. Even if you don't see it or want to admit it. And if you're there in that place and you take Jesus' words seriously, it'll cut you to the heart. That's what Jesus' words are meant to do. Not to say that's someone else, to say that's me. I'm guilty. What do you do when you find yourself in a place like that? I love what John has to say next. Let me share this verse with you. This is how we know the truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth, to Jesus, and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. Are you here today with a heart that condemns you? John's letter says you don't have to hide that. You don't have to soft pedal that. You don't have to justify it. You don't have to rationalize it. You don't have to play that game with God. No. No, his solution is something far different. If your heart condemns you, know this, God is greater than your heart. God is greater than your guilt. God is greater than your shame. God is greater than your sin. God is greater than your murder. God is greater than your hate. Turn to him in it. How did John open this letter? If we say we have no sin, if we say we are not murderers and haters and liars and people of anger, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth isn't in us. Now we're people of darkness and death. But if we confess our sins, if we allow God to convict us in full reality, in objective reality of who we are in our core, and we confess that to God, you know what it says? He's faithful. He's faithful as to his promises to you. He's just. And he will forgive you your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That is God's solution to anger, to murder, to hate. And so the question is, the million dollar question today, if you are to love like Jesus, love by emulating him, by laying your life down for others like him, even your enemy. How do you need to move from hate to love today? Open your heart to God in that question. Let him stir and convict you in that question. Who is it that you need to forgive to give that cup of cold water to, to treat as a friend, to care for and minister to, even when they are your enemy. Because according to John, that's what makes you someone who's with 
Jesus. Like Jesus, a person of light and life, not a person of darkness and death. And it's what we hope God will foster in your life and that we foster here together as we meet in his name. I want to throw one final log on the fire. And then we're going to commune today. And I want you to take Jesus' words seriously on this. Do you remember that Matthew passage that I showed you? Well, you know, the Jesus passage. But recorded in Matthew. You remember this one? Let me read how the rest of it goes. I didn't put it on the screen. But it's important to know. After that final line of you fool will be in danger of the fires of hell just like a murderer, right? Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave. Not because God doesn't love you. No, 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 something far different. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and sister. Then come back and offer your gift. Let me translate into today's context. In the ancient world, you didn't go to church. You went to the temple. And the primary way of worship at temple was to offer some kind of sacrifice, some kind of gift. Jesus is telling people, religious people who are gathering, that if you are there and you are worshiping God and you are coming to seek God and you are coming to receive from God and while you are there, you are coming to give this gift to God because you say you love God so much. And remember that someone has something against you. Or might I add that you have against them? What God wants you to do is leave. Go and make it right. Go and say, I'm sorry. Go and work it out. Go and seek forgiveness. Or go and offer it. And then come back. Because the way that you express your love to God is the way that you express your love to other people. Anything less, Jesus calls hate. And this is why Jesus teaches his disciples to pray things like this. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. How many times do we pray that here? And we're actually telling God, treat me the way that I treat the people with which I'm angry and the people that I hate. Oh man, I never want to pray that prayer again. But Jesus says that's how you should pray. Because that's what love looks like. At least in John chapter 3, verse 11 through 24. And I think it's a posture. God wants all of us to take.